Romans chapter 5. We're going to pick back up in chapter, uh, verse 6 where we left off last week. If you've been joining us and been following along with us, you know that Paul has been speaking on the topic. We're in section 2 of the book of Romans, and he's touching on justification by faith. We were made righteous before God based on faith, a work that he has done. And Paul continues today in that same topic. And he emphasizes today that we can rejoice in God's love because that we were justified by faith. We can rejoice daily in God's love because you and I, would we would say, are saved because we have believed, we've put our faith in Jesus Christ alone. Justification alone in Christ alone. And that we can rejoice because we, because of that, we will see today the love of God being poured out to the uh, a, a sinful nation or to sinful people that we were. And it's because of that work we can rejoice and we can be glad in it. So we've seen so far... Paul outlining what is justification by faith. He gave us very clear indications, five examples using the Old Testament, how and why it's justification by faith. It's nothing new under the sun here. It started right from the very beginning of time. He then showed if you are justified by faith, there are five results that come from that. There's fruit that is bared in someone's life when someone's justified by faith. And then they're saved because... That is so the way God works in our lives. He does that. So there's no, it's very clear to us who is saved and who's not saved because of the fruit. Today, we will now see the fact that those results ultimately revolve around God's love, his unconditional love. And if you would please follow along here in Romans chapter 5, and we're going to just take verses 6 through 11 today, verses 6 through 11, chapter 5. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So we see here right in the very first, these, these simple six verses, short and to the point. And we only have a few minutes today to cover this, but this is completely compacted, full, full of, um, of deep theological truths that you and I must hold and get to understand and know and solidify within our lives. 
And Paul, just in just in these few verses, will talk about, and it pertains, these theological truths pertaining to the justification. And we will see two things, very simple. One, we are going to see um, the condition we were in when God saved us. And we will also see Jesus' physical death and how that shows God's love for us. So here in verse 6 of Romans chapter 5, we see that for when we were still without strength. Well, what does that mean? What, what kind of strength? We immediately think it's physical strength. And in many cases, it could be. But this is spiritual strength. This is talking about our unsaved condition. It, it, this the word strength in the, the, wor- the original word here means or is um, and uh, uh, a which means a weakness or a or a sickness unto death. It means it means that you're just so weak that you're about on your deathbed spiritually and can do nothing to help yourself. It's a medical term. And we see this same word used in Luke chapter 10, verse 9, when you know when the 70 disciples were out being used by God, they were used to reach out and to heal the sick. It's the same word we see in Acts chapter 5, verse 15, where they had brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, and at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on them so they would be healed. And now here Paul is using that exact same word from a not from a physical healing perspective, but from the context or sense of spiritual healing and that we are we need to be healed because we're in a sick to death situation in our spiritual condition. We may think we're alive physically. We may have a great life that we've built on our own, but our spiritual condition is a so sick and so weak that you're about to die. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, "You He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. See, when you're not saved, if you have not been justified by faith, you are dead in your trespasses. You are sick to the core, and you don't even know that it's... The, it's ravaging within your, within your life. You just know there's signs and symptoms that your, your life is falling apart, but you think a little bit more money and, and change a job and move in the locations and, and get the new car and stuff, somehow you're going to feel better and the sickness will just go away. It won't. Apart from giving in your life to Christ and confessing your sins and giving your life to Christ, you're going to die. You have no life apart from Christ. You and I do not have the ability to become healthy spiritually on our own. We cannot make us ourselves righteous before God, being right before him apart from the work of Christ in our life. He's the one that gives us the life. He what makes us alive. Because it's justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, and there is no other way. And I know many churches today, Many, many, come, many of us have come from churches and denominations who have has taught in, in over and over that you must work your way to heaven. Oh, God loves you, and you need to work hard for God, and you need to go do this and earn, and you need to go do this. You need to knock on a certain amount of doors. You must pass out a certain amount of tracts. You must give a certain amount of money. You must this or must that or something you're not doing right. 
But that is not biblical truth. That's what we call religion. If someone is teaching and someone's telling you, you must do to be made right, that's called religion. And that we want nothing to do with that because it's not biblical. We want not a religion. We want a relationship with Jesus Christ because it's his finished work. It's what he's done that makes us righteous, that makes us justified before God. So it's not the fact that you have to complete certain steps and you became a member and you had to go on a mission trip and you had to do this and do that. That makes you justified before God. That makes you right before God. It's only when you realize you are a sinner and you need to be saved and you come humbly to Jesus and you ask God to see a forgiveness of your sin. When you just ask humbly, God, please forgive me. And he comes in and he simply wipes away your sins. You're forgiven and your sins are forgotten. And now you get to breathe with a new life and you just get to enjoy a relationship with God Almighty. How simple is that? And embracing it. Because the Bible teaches clearly that it's on the finished work of Jesus Christ on that cross, shedding of his blood, not your blood. And it's his resurrection that gives you power, that makes you right, that can cleanse you from every sin. And there is no other way. Now we see the second part here of a, a verses in verse 6 through 11 we're going to see this aspect of Jesus' physical death that took place when he came and spoke to your heart when you were in this weak death kind of position. You're on your deathbed. And what was, what was Jesus' physical death like for you and I? Well, we see three things here today. First, in the first part in, is found here in 6b. It says, in due time... Christ died for the ungodly. So he's come to you and I as the ungodly, those who want nothing to do with God, doesn't want anything and want even the knowledge of God. They don't, he doesn't even want, people who are ungodly just wants to do their own thing. They just don't want God involved. These are ungodly. You and I, before we gave our life to Christ, we were ungodly. So what was it like? In due time, Christ died for the, uh, the ungodly. In due time. So we see in Galatians 4 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. God sent his only son in due time, perfect timing, to do a work in the lives of the people he's created. And his timing is always perfect, it was always right. Why? Because man cannot save himself. You couldn't earn your way through the, keeping the law. You couldn't keep the law. You couldn't do enough good things. You could not stay away from the bad things. You could not live a godly life apart from Christ. So God had to send his only begotten son in due time to be able to reach out and to save you. And history is perfect here. 
It was the right time in the sense that we were powerless to break the chains of sin in our life. We were unable to help ourselves. Bond of sin destined for eternal eternity apart from God. And there was nothing we can do to struggle and make it and do it in our own way. We were condemned because of the sin that we were born with. But it was his time, the right time of Christ's atoning death that would come in to be able to save us. So the question then is, is, well, if it's in due time, was there a very specific time that was supposed to take place? The answer is yes. If you go back and you remember the prophecy of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 and 26, it says, Knowing therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince comes, Jesus comes, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again in the wall. And even in troubled times, and after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. So this prophecy speaks of the Messiah when he was to come and when he was to die on the cross. If you look at the scripture here, it speaks the fact that these seven weeks and 62 weeks, or a total of 69 weeks, is the amount of time that once it's declared that Jerusalem was to be rebuilt, you go 69 weeks, you, Jesus it was to arrive in Jerusalem. Well, historically, we know that that is exactly what took place. Now, we also know hindsight, or historically, Daniel was referring to these weeks as seven-year periods. Not seven-day periods, but seven-year periods. So do the math. 69 weeks times the seven-year periods, or a total of 483 years that it was going to be calculated that Messiah would show up. We also know historically that on March 14th, 445 B.C., King Artaxerxes declared that Jerusalem was to be rebuilt. So on that day, March 14th, 445 B.C., you go 483 years or 173,880 days. And on April 6th, 32 A.D., Jesus Christ triumphantly entered into Jerusalem on the donkey, on the Mount of Olives. And it's historical fact. You don't even have to be a believer to know that fact. But when you know, when someone asks you, and I've had this many, oh, how do you know, Pastor, that the Bible is true? How can you believe and trust what the Word does? It's been all rewritten, blah, blah, blah. All these things that non-believers don't understand, and many times even believers don't even fully understand. But one of the things you do know, you need to know, is that prophecy, what God says going to happen, and then later on actually happens, is a batting 100%. And you can do your mathematicians, you can do and go outside after this and do all your calculations. It's mathematically impossible for that to happen. That God is 100% accurate in everything that he has spoken of. And thousands of years later, or 483 years later, that prophecy came true. And you cannot find an error at all. The scripture is accurate. And just using prophecy alone is enough to prove that this is God's word, it's God-breathed, and it, what God said is going to happen will happen regardless of how you and I feel. So we know that on March 14th, 445 B.C., 
69 weeks or 69 the seven year periods, 483 years. April 6, 32 AD, Jesus entered into Jerusalem on the donkey. And you can go back and read that in Matthew chapter 21. And it's fulfilling of the prophecy that Daniel spoke of many years prior. And then we also know that then once he came into Jerusalem, seven days later, Jesus, during that Passion Week, we can go back, we've studied that in the, in, the, in the Gospels, Jesus died on the cross at Calvary. We know it for a fact, and it's true. He died in due time. He died right on time, according to God's timetable, and that matters. And again, that speaks to you and I the validity and the trustworthiness of the, the Holy Bible for us to base our life upon. That's why we study it book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, because we don't want to mess up that part. Now, the second thing we see here is that not only do we look at uh, when did Jesus die, but we also now look at who did Jesus die for? He came in due time to die for the ungodly. Those who do not fear God, that do not have a relationship with God. Those who are like were weak and sick to death, who needed to have a life because they had no life. And the only way that was going to happen, God knew, is that he had to send, he had to bring uh, a savior to die for those who were in their sin. Because we've learned before, we were born sinners. And there's nothing you can do in your own power, in your own way, to be saved for eternal life. So he sent his only begotten son. And then we see a third thing. Why did Jesus die? Why would he do that? Why was he willing to leave heaven to come to this earth to die for you and I? Well, we see this in the remaining of the verses, 7 through 11. The first reason is so that we can see the love of God. Look at verses 7 and 8. And it's funny because Paul uses a contrast. He's, in verse 7, he says to he says them, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. He's basically, Paul is saying, there's a very remote chance, very slim chance, that someone would die for a, a, a righteous man. There might be someone. If, they, if they, they see this righteous man and they're in a position, I would die for that righteous man. And there is a slight chance you might know a good man, that you were willing to give your own life for that good man. But it's so scarcely, it's so difficult for you to get your head, you could probably get your head around that. But Paul is saying here, but in verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, we might die for our family member because we love them. They're our family. They're our kin, man. They're like my, my, my spouse. They're my kids. Of course I would give my life. I would even give my life to the nation. But if you knew a wicked man who was coming against you and wanted to do nothing but harm you, would you die for that man? We don't have the capacity. We don't have the capability. We don't have the right heart to be able to give our life to someone who is a wicked man. That would be very, very difficult. But who would give their life to, to a, for a wicked man? 
Who would give his life for you and I when we were ungodly, a wicked person? Who would do that? Jesus Christ alone. He's the only one. That while we were still sinners, dead in our trespasses, dead in our wicked ways and our wicked thinking, he was willing to come and die for you because he loves you that much. Because he knows apart from him going to the cross and shedding his blood, it would be you that would be shedding your own blood. It would be you that would be destined to go to hell for eternity. And God created you to have a relationship with him, not to not have a relationship with him. It's all about relationship. It's not about religion. And when you realize that God of the universe wants a personal relationship with you because he created you in your mother's womb, and he wants to give you a life that you can breathe and know that you have guaranteed eternal life with him, never to die that is amazing love that's amazing grace and so he sent he he demonstrated the word means to stand near that's what demonstration in the original language means to stand near to stand alongside you side by side to walk with you in this life right into eternity because he wants that relationship with you that bad. Why? Why would he die? Why does he love me and you that much? Because he loves much. His great love for us is what we refer to as uh, the key word here that we see in the scripture here for love is agape love, an unconditional love. See, our love is always conditional. I'll love you if you love me. I'll talk to you if you talk to me. I'll go out of my way to help you if I can get a benefit from this thing. It's always conditional. Because you don't have, and I don't have the capacity from Christ to be able to have an unconditional love toward a human being. We're selfish. We're dirt and rotten sinners born that way. And the only difference between when you were born a sinner and when you're 20 years old or 25 or 30 or 35 or 90, the only difference is you've just matured the wickedness of ungodliness. You just refined it. But it doesn't matter how old you are. When you come to the end of yourself and you realize a, your, your life is just empty, you've tried everything. You've tried every drug and alcohol and, and sex and everything else in your world of life or this worldliness, the lust of the eye and lust of the flesh and the pride of life. You tried everything and you're still empty. As we learned two weeks ago, then you finally tap out. You finally stop dying. You stop living for yourself. And you say, you know, it's not about me. Because the more I think about myself, the more miserable I become. And I'm done. And that's when God says, yes, I have demonstrated my love for you. Because while you were in this state, I already died for you. Just receive it. Receive the free gift. 
I'm not going to do anything crazy. I'm just going to do this. And guess what? The miraculous, he comes in and he will save you. John 3, 16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's a spiritual love that can only come from God. 1 John 4.10, in this love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Not only is it a spiritual love that he has for us, but it's also sacrificial love. John 15.13 says, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. He calls you friends. loves you so much that he was willing to send his own son for you to shed his blood so that you could be and I could be made righteous before God giving us a new life 1 John 4, 9 says, In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. So that's the first reason why he died. He, he, he died so that we can see the love of God. The second thing is, is that so we receive the righteousness of God himself. We see that in verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood. So it wasn't enough that God came along and demonstrated, came alongside you and I. It wasn't enough that he poured out and showed his unconditional love for you and I. But we also see the fact that he gave even much more than that, and he was willing to justify us by his own blood. Made right. Justification, just as you've, if you've never sinned before in the day of your life. Imagine the fact that being justified, that you are not, you have, like, it, God looks at you and says, you've never sinned. What do you mean you think you've sinned? I don't see any sin. I see Jesus in, in you. Your sins have been forgiven and forgotten. Why are you keep bringing up your past? Why do you keep dwelling on the past sins? Why do you keep thinking you, you're paralyzed in your sin? You can't move in life. You can't move ahead because you're so focused on your past sins. I have forgiven them. I have forgotten them. I move on. Live a life for, with me. I've given you a new life. Live the new life. So why did Jesus die? Well, so we could receive the righteousness of God himself. 1 Peter 1.18 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by traditions from your fathers. You were aimlessly out there playing religion and all these other things that you got traditionally. But I'm telling you, it's a new life that I give you. You can't earn a life by having a lot of silver and gold and think you've made it. It can only be done by and, and be, you can only be made just by Jesus' blood. Why is that important? 
Well, many, many churches today avoid the subjects of sin. They don't, talk, they don't say sin. They don't even teach death or hell during their conversations today in many churches. Why is that? Because they don't want to offend you. They, 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 they don't want you to feel uncomfortable of what the word of God says. So they just avoid it because they want you to feel good and feel warm and fuzzy. So that you keep coming back. But once you understand that that is not a bad thing, that it is a good thing, and we rejoice in God's love, saving us from sin, saving us from hell, saving us from the destruction of death because we're weak and we're sick to death in our position, we celebrate it. Because Hebrews 9.22 says, without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. If Jesus didn't shed his blood, you and I were going to hell. We'll never be, wouldn't be forgiven. Why would we want to avoid that subject? Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls or goats could take away sins. So you can't go out there and sacrifice something or someone else yourself that so many religions have done or can do or are doing. That's not going to save them. Cannot be, be by anyone's blood must be a righteous blood, it must be sinless blood, and it's only Jesus Christ that had sinless blood that could be shed. He was the spotless lamb. That's why we sing many times, nothing but the blood of Jesus. How is one saved? How is one cleansed? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now, a third reason why Jesus died is so that we can be saved from the wrath of God. At the end of verse 9, we shall be saved from wrath through him. It speaks of his death, burial, and resurrection. So there's two, two wraths that we see in the scripture. The first one is he's referring to is the eternal wrath or the eternal separation from God. We see, we'll see that in Romans uh, 5, 12 next week. But we, we, we are born to receive the wrath of God born into sin because of that. So remember Ephesians 2, 3, it says, by nature, children of wrath, we are children of wrath just as the others. So when we were born, we were born into eternal wrath, and we need to be saved from that eternal wrath, and that is why Jesus came to the cross. We also see in Romans 2, 5, in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of righteousness and judgment of God. We also see in John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but wrath of God abides on him. So the question is, is why would God come and, and die? It's because he wanted to save you and I from a position that we were in, which is in the position of wrath, somewhat eternal wrath, being separated from God for eternity. And he wanted to save you and I from that. But it also talks about a temporal wrath. A temporal wrath, meaning wrath of today. What would come? It's the second one, and it speaks to the great tribulation that is to come. That seven-day period post-rapture of the church that we see in the scripture. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Or the 70th week of Daniel. We see in Jeremiah referred to as Jacob's trouble. We see in Revelations the, the seals judgment, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments. And we've studied that when we studied the book of Revelation. 
We see in Revelation 6, 16, it speaks of the wrath of God. And here it talks about the saving wrath or saving from the wrath that is to come during that period of time. Paul goes on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, speaks to the fact that for God did not appoint you and I, us, to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So once you became a child of his, once you became into his family, he didn't destine you and I as his family to be go through the great tribulation, to go through his wrath. He was going to save us from that. Jesus even said that in Luke 21, 36. Watch therefore, pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Even in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, Then Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So take note for you and I that in the scripture right here, he's not saying that you and I are going to see the wrath. He says that contrary. He's going to, he came to save you and I from the wrath. That's why we can rejoice in God's love. Why would you avoid that conversation? Why would you avoid that topic? Why would you pick and choose and skip around that, that scripture? Why do so many people talk about, about your eternal life and you go, and people go, I don't want to talk about God. I don't want to talk about, well, I want to talk about it because it's about eternal. You might live maybe on the average of 70 years on this earth, but I'm talking forever where it's going to happen to your life. And if you've given your life to Jesus Christ now, you are part of what God is saying here. He's going to save you from the wrath of God. And then we see that it validates the pre-tribulational um, uh, uh, distinctive view, the pre-trib view that we hold here. We believe that any moment we can be raptured by God and to be in his presence and his faithful love. We see in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, for God, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, you and I, who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 58. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. We will be taken out of here. Why do we not? That's why we sing at the very end, soon and very soon. Because you and I, our hope is the fact that we get to live for Christ. We can freely live for him and just enjoy his love. But in a twinkling of an eye, he could rapture us like that and meet him in the clouds. And we will not face and see the wrath of the great, the great tribulation that will come upon this earth to those who are the still ungodly. Now, I understand. And maybe some of you have a different view of pre-tribulation. Some have a mid-tribulation point of view. Some have a post-tribulation point of view. Some even have a 
pan tribulation. They just figured out, oh, we'll just life is just going to pan itself out however it will be at the end. That's a very scary position to hold. When you have the scriptures right in front of you and it's true and accurate, the Bible is very clear that the rapture is going to take place and you and I as believers will not face the wrath of God. We will not face that great tribulation. But it's not one of the essentials of the Christian doctrinal faith. It's secondary. How many times people want to divide among brothers and sisters around the subject of tribulation when it's not even a... A, it's not a position that you're that would hold um, any weight in regards to if you're saved or not. It's just a view. It's just study the scriptures. You, you settle that between you and the Lord. But for here, that's what we believe based on the scriptures. Now, the fourth reason why Jesus died is so that we can be reconciled to God. And we see that in verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled. Reconciled term means a banking term. It means to change or to exchange currency one for another. That's what reconcile, reconciliation means or reconcile means. It means it's a spiritual term here where God comes in and he uh, exchanges your life for his life. He says, you're the one that needs to be punished for your sin, but I'm going to come in exchange and be the one that takes your punishment. You're the one that's in jail. You should be paying. You can't pay. You have no way to pay. You're the one in jail, but I'm going to come in and redeem you and pay your ransom. I'm going to free you. He does an exchange. Why do we need an exchange? Many people will say, I don't need God. I'm just perfectly fine. Well, we know in scriptures, we saw in verse 2 last, last week, that we were, we were sick. Well, obviously in verse 6, we were sick and, and without strength. And we also see that we were sinners. But right now, we see right here in this verse, verse 10, that we were also enemies of God. So we have to be exchanged. Because we're not in right position to, to stand up and think we're strong enough and we're good enough. We need to humble ourselves. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all, all things have become new. It's by God's glorious grace. He says, you're filthy, man. you got some nasty, smelly clothes. Let me take those clothes and give you new clothes. You're dead. You're sick. Your body's falling apart. Uh, give me your body. I'll give you a new creation. What is it going to cost me? Nothing. You'll do it with no strings attached. No strings attached. It's a free gift. Do you want to just receive it? You, do, you can do it or you don't have to do it. I don't force anyone to love me. I just give them the opportunity to be able to love me. free gift of God. And then we see in 2 Corinthians 5 verses 18 through 20 that not only that he came to save you to be to reconcile you but once you've been reconciled 
there's a natural reaction that comes from a godly person. That should be the natural reaction. You went from a selfish nature will then change to a nature of wanting to serve and to give to others. And we see in 2 Corinthians 5, 18, that once we have given our life and we've been reconciled or justified by God or reconciled to God, we now have a ministry. We have the ability to be a vessel used by God, or it refers to Scripture, an ambassador for Christ to you. You know the nation, right? We send ambassadors throughout the world to represent our country. And we, as an ambassador, say and do things based on what our nation asks them to do. That's an ambassador to another country. Once you're a child of God and you're in the family of God, you become an ambassador. You become a child that needs to represent the family of God. And you become the mouthpiece of what God wants to say through your life. And it, we see in the scripture there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, where he actually pleads through us, use, giving us words and pleading to others, communicating on Christ's behalf so that they too can be reconciled to God. So we have been given the ministry of reconciliation to be a vessel, an ambassador available for God to work through our voice to share the good news with those who are not in right standing with God. Now, the fifth reason why Jesus died, we see here in the scripture, is so he can, so we can be saved by God, verse, verse 10, verse, the second part of verse 10, says, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. His life is referring to his resurrected life. We are saved because of Jesus' resurrected life. Romans 4.25, Jesus who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. And it's through that justification life of Jesus that is the cornerstone for Christianity. Yes, you can say Jesus went to the cross, but he is no longer on the cross. You can say he shed his blood on the cross, but you must carry it all the way through because even if he stayed on the cross, it didn't save you. Just the shedding of the blood didn't save you. It's the resurrected life it gives us the new life. 1 Corinthians 15, 14. If you go back today and read just 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's called the resurrection chapter. It is a great chapter. Highly recommend you go through the entire chapter. But it's significant in our understanding of the resurrected life that you and I must understand. In 1 Corinthians 15, 14, it says, If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. You see how important that is? 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. 
So for someone not to be sharing that Jesus is resurrected from the dead, he lives and reigns, and he wants a personal relationship with you. He wants to forgive you of your sins if you were just surrender your life. Because he's alive, he's resurrected. That's why we celebrate that resurrection. Because if you don't, and if you don't accept it, if you don't believe it, you will continue to live in your futile, sinful life. You're dead, you're weak, you're going to hell. Simple. But you don't need to. You just have to believe in the finished work of Jesus. How critical this resurrection is for you and I. And the sixth and final reason, and we'll close up with this, why Jesus died. So we can rejoice in God. Verse 11. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. See, this is not a, re a relationship of a humdrum relationship. How's your relationship with Jesus? Ah, uh, you know, it's... It's blah. It's, it's, it's okay. Once in a while when I'm in really deep trouble, I'll reach out to him. When I really want something new, I ring the bell and I'm hoping my little bellhop Jesus will come and give it to me. No, no, now we're talking that kind of relationship. A relationship to know that he paid it all and that we can humbly come to him and ask of anything. And he'll listen to us. He'll receive us. He'll comfort us. He'll, he'll minister to us. He'll encourage us. He'll, he, he's a God that can meet and address any need that you have. If you just come to him. See, right here it says we can rejoice in God. And the only reason why we can rejoice in God is by the fact that it's through our Lord Jesus Christ because we've accepted Jesus as our Lord, our Master. He's our Savior. And we've received the reconciliation. We have reconciled, we've made, we've made that gap between God and you, that sin that separated you from God, you, the sin was removed and you are now, God walks as we've studied alongside you. He walks with you. In verse 2 of chapter 5, we saw we were to rejoice in hope. Verse 3, we were to rejoice in tribulation. And we're to rejoice in God here in verse 11. You know the scripture, Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say what? Rejoice. We get to rejoice in our relationship with God. We get to have fun with this. What else can we do? Have you ever asked that? Apart from Christ, what else could we rejoice in? What does the world have to offer you that you can really rejoice in every day? Oh, we try. Oh, the weather's beautiful today. Oh, let's rejoice. The vitamin D is pouring into me here. Got a new truck. I can rejoice. Oh, you can go through all of us. We've gone through the things of this world that we rejoice in. And then all of a sudden, the next day, we're not rejoicing so well because 
that brand new car that I bought out of the dealership just got hit and scratched. And now I'm in turmoil. Oh, we're rejoicing because we just had a great vacation. Oh, didn't that make you feel great? And then you're back to work the next day and you're like, you forgot your vacation. Oh, how quickly our emotions and feelings can sway us. But we can always rejoice in God's love. Always. Always we do. Because we've been justified by faith alone in Christ alone. So the question for you today, can you rejoice in God? Can you rejoice in your relation, your personal relationship with your Lord Jesus Christ? Can you? Are you sitting there today? Are you listening to the words today? And can you really say you're rejoicing in your relationship with Jesus? Have you received justification? Have you been reconciled? Are you close and walking right alongside your Lord and Savior? If the answer, the honest answer in your mind is no, I'm not rejoicing. I don't have that rejoice. I don't have that rejoicing, that peace within me of having a personal relationship. And today's the day you can come to him. Just simply believe. Believe what God has said. Believe that God loves you and wants a personal relationship with you. And you just receive it because it's a free gift. It's, it's going to take you to humble yourself. Oh, I know your story. I know you're so bright and brilliant and Oh, you can give me the, all the accolades and all the, I can look at your lovely wall today and, and see all the achievements. But are you still empty and you're still not rejoicing in your relationship with God Almighty? Well, today's the day you do. Because all you have to do is confess that you are weak. You are sick. Confess your sins. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you remember the day you were saved? Do you remember the day you finally came to the end of yourself and you say, okay, I've stopped playing games. I've been playing Christianity. I, play, I, I look like it. I smell like it. But I certainly was not. Or maybe you were so wicked, it was so clear that when you came out of darkness, it was like, whew, that light was so bright. You, you knew the difference. You knew you were changed. And do you remember that 100-pound gorilla that came off of your back and you just felt the rest and the faith? Do you remember that day? Oh, I certainly remember that day. But today's the day of you ever experienced God's grace. Today's the day for you to receive salvation.